Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Can you go back to that picture of the dorm room? That's not the size of a dorm room that I remember. These kids here. But how sweet, how cool. All right, friends. Hi, how are you? Great to see you this morning. Now that my glasses are on. Uh, Today, friends, uh, we are in Matthew chapter 7. Adam Cherry sent out an email to those that are involved in the men's ministry. So you may have received it, gentlemen. Uh, And I just thought it was... It was very, very well said because he he commented on this evening. You know, and sometimes we look at an event, we hear about it in the bulletin or in the announcement times, and we think, yeah, eh, not my thing. You know, I'll get, I'll check out the next event when it comes along. Um, tonight's uh, true love, true event may not be your thing or whatever, but gentlemen, I would ask, please, um, come tonight because I think every one of us needs to be here so that when the meeting is over, this will be your thing. Because this needs to be our thing, gentlemen. All right, so tonight we start at 6 o'clock. You'll have plenty of time to get home and watch the Eagles uh, afterwards. Uh, chances are not going to do anything exciting in the first half anyway. <laughs> you know, usually takes a half to get going. So anyway, that's tonight at 6 p.m. Uh, as I said, we are in Matthew chapter 7. And so go ahead and turn there. Uh, we left off in verse 7. So that's where we're going to pick up today. We're trying to make our way verse by verse through the whole Bible and uh, particularly now the book of Matthew. So let me read these opening verses. Let me pray first. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the opportunity today to consider it again. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your spirit to take these words and cause them, Lord, uh, to come to life within our hearts. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your spirit for those of us that believe that is in our hearts, ministering truth, Lord, uh, when it is uh, presented to us. And so, We ask for that blessing again this morning as we gather. We submit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 7 says this. It says, Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? Chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Now, in chapter 6, verses 5 to 13, Jesus contrasted the way that the world prays with that of the way that a disciple is supposed to pray. So back in chapter 6, verses 5 to 13, he He began, He said, when you pray, pray like this. And then he went on and he exemplified that we are to come to God in relationship. You remember he called him Father. He exemplified that we're to come to God with right perspective. That was that phrase, hallowed be thy name, that God is holy, that we are not. He taught us to seek the Lord's will when he said your will be done and to submit our will to his will. And then he showed us that we are to petition God daily for our daily needs when he said give us this day our daily bread and also our daily cleansing, which was forgive us our debts, and that he would also give us a heart that has the ability to forgive other people as well, when he said, as we forgive our debtors. And then finally, in that answer to the question, teach us how to pray, and Jesus saying, when you pray, pray like this, he showed us 
to acknowledge our own moral weakness. That's where he said, lead us not into temptation and to petition God to keep us from giving in to those weaknesses. That was the phrase, deliver us from evil. Now we call that prayer the Lord's Prayer. Though at the time, you may recall I mentioned, it's probably better called the Disciples' Prayer. But Jesus did a teaching on prayer just about a chapter ago. Now for us, it was about four weeks ago. But just about a chapter ago, we did a teaching on prayer. And now as we come to chapter 7, verse 7, he returns again to the topic of prayer. So one of the things I think we need to remind ourselves is this, is we've been studying now the Sermon on the Mount close to eight weeks. I just saw a guy that I enjoy listening to. He did a 35-week study on the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things about that, when you study it over a period of time, is you forget, to, you forget that it's all one sermon. So that these guys that are sitting there in front of him listening, maybe they're investing 25 minutes of their time listening to this, and the common themes all sort of make sense because I just heard it two minutes ago when he just said that. For us, it was four weeks ago. So he returns now to the topic of prayer. So keep in mind what we just saw there from chapter 6. And again, in verse 7, he says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. If you are going to be a disciple of Christ, now remember, those that came up on the hill were those he invited, those were disciples. Everybody else down at the bottom of the hill are passerbys, they're like, oh, that's interesting, neat fella. But then Jesus said, I'm going to go up on the hill and I'm going to teach. And any of you that want to be my disciple, you can come up on the hill. So they made the trek, they went up there, they sat down on the hill and they began to listen. And so the disciple of Christ is exhorted, again now, to be a person of prayer. We are told that we are to ask. We are told that we are to seek. And we are told that we are to knock. Now the interesting thing, that in the Greek language, this phrase is something that is in the tense that is referred to as the present perfect tense. What that means is it's something that you are to do and keep doing until completion. Okay, to do and keep doing until completion. So rather than saying that we are to ask, really what Jesus is saying is that you are to keep asking. Rather than just seek, you are to keep seeking. And rather than just knock, you are called to keep knocking. So by choosing and utilize those words and utilizing this tense, Jesus is teaching us this about prayer, that we are to be persistent in prayer. I don't like to be persistent. I want to ask once, and I want to be done with it. I want to cross it off my list. I already asked God for that, and I want to move on to my next task that is ahead of me. I don't like to be persistent in prayer. But the reality is this. Because I don't like to be persistent in prayer, I miss what the Lord wants to teach me in that persistence. You see, because if it was just one and done, then I, as his kid, have no need to learn patience. If it's just, wow, a lot of whom's going on over there. If it's just one and done, then I don't need to learn dependence on God. If it's just one and done, then there's no need for me to trust. God, believe it or not, is not offended by your persistence. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus provides us with a parable. And the purpose of the parable is given right at the start of the parable. So there's no doubt what Jesus was trying to say. Somebody once told me that you know, you really shouldn't dig into the parables and try and teach the parables. He was talking to pastors. 
for like 10, 15, 20 years. He said, because you probably don't understand what they mean. This one we know what he meant. Look what he says in verse 1 of chapter 18. He said, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always, they ought always to pray and not lose heart. I wonder what Jesus wanted to teach in this particular parable. That's what he wanted to teach, that we would always pray and that we would not lose heart or that we would be persistent. And then in that parable, Jesus goes on and he tells a story of a woman that kept petitioning this judge to hear her case, to make a decision, and to give her the justice that she felt she was deserved. Now, we're told in this parable that the judge didn't want to hear her case. That this particular woman, often you would go to the judge and you would give him money as well. Not so much a bribe necessarily, but money for his efforts and so on, her efforts. And this woman didn't really have all that to offer. She didn't have a lot of influence, didn't have a lot of money, didn't have a lot of uh, importance to her name or whatever. I'm not interested in your case. And she kept coming back and kept coming back and kept coming back. It says this of the judge. He said, finally, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down, you've been there, by her continual coming. That's what the judge says. So he'll hear the case because she just keeps annoying him and I'll I'll listen so you'll go away from me. Now Jesus says this, hear then what the unrighteous judge says, that he'll hear the case, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Now, some hear this and they think that Jesus is saying just keep bugging God and eventually God will give in. But that's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point in the parable is this, that if the unrighteous, uncaring, selfish judge can be moved by your persistence, just imagine what your persistence will do toward an all-righteous, all-caring, all-loving Father. That's Jesus' point. God values persistence in prayer. Because again, persistence in prayer, it demonstrates trust and dependence and patience. And without words, when you keep coming back to God in prayer, without words you are saying that you believe that God is good and that God can be trusted. Without words, coming back again on my knees in prayer, it says to God, I take you at your word that I can come and make my request known to you. The persistent asking. What it does is it develops a relationship with our Heavenly Father. It deepens, if you will, your spiritual communication skills. Because you come back a second time, and in your mind you're sort of like, well, maybe if I reword this a little better. And then you just start wrestling with it and chewing on it and bringing it to Him, and it deepens your spiritual communication skills. You know what it also does, persistence does? It hones down our passions. It focuses our prayers. Because in our initial coming, we may have come with this long list of things But as time begins to wear on, some of those things fall off the list naturally. Others of those things we begin to cross off of the list. And then eventually we're left with, if you will, one or two things on the list that our heart is crying and said, you know what, I could put that aside. I don't really need that. I don't know why I asked for that to begin with. But I have to have this, Lord. And then like the persistent widow, we're essentially saying, I must have this, Lord. Not having our initial prayer answered it serves to refine our prayers a little bit. Now there are some that say, you know, I've tried praying, but it seems that no one is listening. I've tried praying, but it feels like my prayers 
are hitting a brick wall. And to you, I would say this. No, it's not a brick wall. It's a door. It's not a brick wall. It's a door. Yes, there is resistance. But despite the resistance, we can be encouraged by the fact that it's a door that can be opened, not a wall that is immovable. And so we keep asking, we keep seeking, we keep knocking. Others will say this, well, you know, I don't know how to pray. I'm not a Bible scholar or anything like that. I don't know how to pray. Well, to you, I think Jesus would say, well, can you knock? Commenting on this, Charles Spurgeon, he said this. He said, any uneducated man can knock if that is all that is required of him. A man can knock, though he be no philosopher. A dumb man, a person who can't speak, a dumb man can knock. A blind man can knock. With a palsied hand, a man may knock. The way to open heaven's gates is wonderfully simplifies, excuse me, simplified to those who are lowly enough to follow the Holy Spirit's guidance to ask, to seek, and to knock believingly. It's as plain as knocking at a door. You might say, I don't know how to pray, but can you knock? Some will say, well, Greg, I've been, a- I've been asking. I've been seeking. I've been knocking and still no answer. And to you, Jesus would say, not me, but Jesus would say, keep asking. Keep e- uh, seeking. And don't stop knocking, especially now. Now, sometimes our prayers do go unanswered. Have you experienced that? Has anybody here had every prayer ever? No, come on, you've experienced it. Sometimes our prayers go unanswered. And they do so according to the Scripture. They go unanswered for a few reasons. Some, James chapter 4 says this, you have not because you ask not. So some of our prayers go unanswered because we don't even ask those particular things. And so we are exhorted to pray. You have not because you ask not. Other times our prayers are unanswered because we're asking for the wrong reason. What I mean by that is our intentions are wrong. So the request may be right. So I might say something like, Lord, use me to save a lot of souls. But the motivation could be askew so that everyone will know what a great evangelist I am. You see? The request is right, but the motivation is wrong. So again, to quote James, James says this, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly that you might spend it on your own passion. So sometimes our prayers are unanswered because our motivations are wrong. Sometimes our prayers are unanswered because they're not according to God's will. So Matthew 7, 7's ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. That's not a blank check, if you will, for our prayer lives. That is, that if we keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, that we can get whatever we want. The Apostle John, he said this in 1 John, he said, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If you want your prayers to be answered, then your prayers have to be according to the will of God. And again, that's part of the refining process of being persistent in our prayers. God brings those prayers into alignment with his will. Now, there's one other reason why in the scripture our prayers go unanswered. This is from the Psalms. Psalm 66, it says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Now, this isn't saying that you have to be perfect before God before any of your prayers can be answered. But rather what it's speaking of is it's saying that you can't have unconfessed sin in your life. 
And what, and what I mean, let me give you this. God can't be putting His finger on an area of your life saying essentially to you, look, I want you to let go of that particular thing. And you brush Him aside and you say, yeah, yeah, we'll get to that. But first, Lord, I, I want you to do this. He doesn't work that way. And he says, no, you first deal with that. And then we'll come back to that other thing you have on your heart. The Lord essentially is saying, first things first. Sometimes the reason our prayers go unanswered is because the Lord is dealing with some other things in our lives. Now, to illustrate his point, look at verse 9. This point about coming to the Lord in prayer and Him hearing us. Jesus gives the example of a father. And He says, Of which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil... Know how, how do you like that? Thanks, Lord. Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Now some of us here are jokers. We're jokesters. Some of us. And if our son asked us for a roll or something like that, we'd slip him a, a rock and just see if he put it in his mouth and you know, had some fun with him. And the kid would say, yeah, that's funny, Dad. I appreciate that. But even those of us here that are jokesters, when push comes to shove and our kids are really hungry, we would do everything in our power to answer his genuine request for something to eat. I remember a movie that was out, Cinderella Man. Anybody see it? It's a good boxing movie. We had a discussion as to whether boxing is Christian or not. Um, you can talk to your friends about that and come up with your own opinion. But in the, the whole story, it's about a boxer, but it's also about the Great Depression. And there's this instance where the family is sitting around a table early in the morning and there's essentially nothing in the fridge. Uh, and, you know, the milk, they have just a little bit and the mom goes over and she puts a little bit of water in there hiding from the kid so he won't know. But the dad is sort of eating this meal here and the kid is essentially talking about how he's hungry. And he is hungry. He just woke up. He's hungry or whatever. And so the dad says, you know what? I had a big dinner last night after such and such or whatever. I can't eat another bite of this. And he hadn't eaten anything. But he passed it over to his kid, and you know, if he would have said, you can have mine, or whatever, the kid might, uh, whatever. And so he passes it over to his kid, pretending as if he's not hungry at all, when in reality, he was. You know, when push comes to shove, we'll do whatever our kids may need in that instance. We may say no when they say, hey, can I stay up all night and play video games? We may say no to that request. We may say no when they want to go with those CD characters to those CD places. We'll say no to something like that. But when it comes to a genuine need that they have, without a doubt, we're going to do everything we can to meet that need. And notice, and Jesus says, and you're evil, and you do that. I've never been called evil. I've been called a bad guy and things like that. Or, you know, I know that I'm a sinner, but there's something about being called evil that I don't know if I like or whatever. But Jesus says, and you then who are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more will your Father in heaven, who's not evil, but who's all good, who's holy, how much more will He give good things to those who ask? If you as a sinner respond that way, how much more your Father who is in heaven? Your Father in heaven knows what you need. He knows what is according to His will for your life. And He knows when and how to answer your prayer. Trust Him. Love Him. Come to Him in persistent prayer. And let Him hear that prayer and respond. Now we continue in verse 12 and it says, So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the so-called golden rule. Do unto others 
as you would have them do unto you. Now, it's, it's interesting. Notice that the verse begins with the word so. Some of your versions, it begins with the word therefore. That seems kind of odd. Because so, or therefore, they're words designed to sum up a passage. They're words that come right before the author is going to give his conclusion. It's as if they're saying, and so, in light of everything that I have just said previously, do this. So they're words that sum up a passage. In the context of the statement, it doesn't seem to go with that which has just come before. So how does do unto others connect with ask, seek, and knock? It doesn't seem like it does. Well, in reality, do unto others is actually the summation of verses 1 through 11, not verses 7 to 11. So do unto others is connected back to verse 1. Look at verse 1 where it says, judge not lest you be judged. It's connected back to those earlier verses where it says, remove the two by four from your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother. So again, so whatever you wish would do, that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Isn't that real good truth right there? Straightforward, simple, take that with you, put it in your pocket, and you're good to go. Somebody has said, you can solve all of the world's problems by simply, if we all just simply lived according to this verse. Would you agree with that? I think we would. We could, right? The problem is it's not so easy to live according to this verse, is it? You see, because if I mess up, I want people to forgive me when I apologize. But yet it's so often so hard for me to forgive others when they mess up against me. When I come home from a long day, and I'm not saying anything here, okay? <laughs> My wife's right here. But when I come home from a long day, I would like to see the dishes in the sink done and the counters cleared. Yeah, it's interesting. When the rest of the folks aren't there and I come home to the house and the rest of the folks aren't there in the house, the last thing that I want to do is do the dishes and clear the counters in anticipation of their return. I don't know about you, but if I pull in my house and I see no car, no lights on, I'm thinking, freedom, freedom. I got an hour. What can I do for an hour, you know? Or whatever. So conceptually, I understand that we would live in a pretty great world if everyone lived according to this golden rule. But practically, I know that following through and actually living that way is actually quite difficult to do. It's hard. Now, I would say this. It's supposed to be hard. When Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, it's supposed to actually be impossible. You're to hear that and say, well, that's impossible for me to do. You see, because you could do it. I know we could all do it for an hour, maybe a day, maybe a week or something like that. But as time goes on, eventually we're going to crack. You'll crack after an hour, somebody else after a week, somebody else after a month. But eventually, you're going to crack. And you're going to say, you know, I just can't do it. Now, there are those that have suggested that Jesus stole this material, this do unto others. You know, that he's stealing other people's sermons or whatever that other philosophers hundreds of years before him have said these things. People like Confucius and Socrates and Aristotle. They did, by the way, make similar statements. This is what they said. Confucius, he said this. He said, don't do to men what you don't want done to you. Okay? Aristotle said, what you don't want done to you, don't do to others. I think he stole it. It's the exact same thing. Socrates, he got out of thesaurus. He said, whatever is displeasing to you, don't do that to others. 
your mom probably said, if you don't want it done to you, don't do it to others. You know, she said the same thing. All of them very similar to each other and to Jesus, but there's one significant difference from what those guys and your mom said and from what the Lord says here. Because each of their statements, as you can see, it's presented in the negative. Whereas Jesus' statement is presented in the positive. Confucius, Aristotle, Socrates, and your mom, they all declared what you shouldn't do. But Jesus, stating in the positive, He declares what you should do. Now to be frank with you, it's a challenge for me to walk away and not say something that I wouldn't once said to me. Sometimes that's a challenge for me. Or driving in the car. And someone cuts you. I know. You've been there. Right? Driving and somebody does something and you want to. It's a challenge for me to not say something I wouldn't once said to me. But it's a whole nother level when I not only have to restrain myself from saying something that would be inappropriate, but that I must say something that is kind and encouraging. That's a whole nother level. And I think that's Jesus' point. It's supposed to be a whole nother level. You remember back in chapter 5 when Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. It's supposed to be a whole nother level. Many look at the golden rule and they think this, got it! Treat others the way I want to be treated and I'll get into heaven. That's not Jesus' point. We know from the testimony of Scripture that there's only one way that we can have our sins forgiven and that is faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. To be honest with you, I'm not sure, even sure Jesus' point in presenting this golden rule is to leave us with the impression that we can successfully do it anyway. I don't think that's why he brought it up at all. It's really hard for me to not do unto others what I don't want them to do to me, but it's pretty much impossible for me to actually do unto others what I would have them to do. I find it significant. There's a similar passage in the book of Luke. Not the exact same scenario, but where the same message was essentially taught. And this is found in Luke chapter 7. And there in Luke, excuse me, 11. And there in Luke 11, Jesus includes a couple of other words in this statement. He says this, If you then being evil, it's familiar, right? Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You see the difference? Matthew chapter 7 he said, give good things to those who ask Him. Here now in Luke 11, He says, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. That's the difference. In your own strength, you can't consistently and persistently do unto others those things you would want them to do for you. Because at some point in time, your flesh is going to kick in and it's going to say, I just want everyone to love me and to serve me. Why is this so hard for everybody to understand? <laughs> I don't understand. You cannot live this way consistently and persistently except by the power of God's Holy Spirit working in you. And so, to go back to the verses we looked at when we started, you must keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking for the strength to do so. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, I'm going to break out the King James here, so this is serious. He said this, he said, he said, be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit. You remember that present perfect tense in the Greek? It's something you keep doing until completion. So he says, be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit. That means being led by the Spirit and being submitted to the Spirit. 
Remember, you, we were not given the Old Testament law. And, and remember the verse there, it says, and thus fulfill the law and the prophets. That's the Old Testament law. We were not given the Old Testament law so that we could perfectly keep the Old Testament law, but rather to show us that we can't keep the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law was not given to us to create in us a righteousness, but rather to reveal what? You know, unrighteousness. Sorry, you don't know, apparently. All right, we'll go back. We'll do, that. we'll do that one again. All right. But the Old Testament wasn't given to us to create in us a righteousness, but to reveal our unrighteousness. So if you are unable, utterly unable, to keep the Old Testament law, do you really think that you will be able to keep Jesus' summation of the Old Testament law? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you? The answer is no, certainly not. Jesus is calling His disciples here to do something as impossible as trying to keep the Old Testament law perfectly. So, instead of keep do unto others as you would have them do unto you so you can get into heaven, the whole point of this is to show you that you can't do it, that it's an impossibility. Now, I suspect there were some in the audience there in front of Jesus, maybe some of us here this morning that are thinking, oh, come on, Lord. Can't you just dial it back a little bit? But Jesus won't dial it back. And I think that's a difference between the Gospel message, Christianity, if you will, than the messages of the world system, whether that be a religious world system or just any old world system that is out there. Jesus is not going to relax the standards. And He's not going to dial it back to make it more palatable to you. It is what He said. It means what He said. Now deal with it and do it. And so Jesus is showing us here the impossibility. Notice what He says in verse 13. He says this, Enter by the narrow gate. You see, he's not dialing it back. He's telling you it's a narrow gate. For the gate is wide, the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. To live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Remember I called this a month, two months ago the kingdom manifesto? To live as a citizen of the kingdom of God mandates this, that the gate be straight and that the path be narrow. It means this, as a disciple, it will take your commitment, your consecration, your dependence on God, and much repentance because you're going to most assuredly fail and fall short. Now some of us hear that and we say, well then why bother? If I'm going to fall short anyway, why bother? Why not just skate through? Do the best I can, you know, every now and again, but just kind of skate through because of this. Because as it says in verse 14, the narrow path is the way that leads to life. The narrow path is the way that leads to life. Now there's a few different applications too, actually, of these words here in verses 13 and 14. The common application essentially takes these verses, kind of puts it up on a slide in and of itself, by itself. And the common application applies this to Jesus' message of salvation. In John chapter 14, verse 6, you know the verse, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John chapter 10, Jesus said this, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. So I am the door, underline the, anyone enters by me, he will be saved. You want to be saved? Then you have to enter in through the door. 
His earliest disciples, Jesus' that is, they preached this. They said, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby they must be saved. The Apostle Paul, he wrote these words. He said, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The clear testimony of Scripture is that the path to heaven is narrow. Now the world will tell you all paths lead to God. The world will tell you do your best and God will see your sincerity. The world will tell you live a life in which your good outweighs your bad. And the world will tell you all sorts of things. But Jesus says this, I alone am the way. And I alone am the truth. And I alone am the life. And no one comes to the Father unless He comes through me. You know, that statement again that I quoted here, I I, uh, referenced, all paths lead to God. That's a true statement. All paths do lead to God. The Bible says this in Hebrews 9, it's appointed for man once to die, and after that, the judgment. It is true that all paths lead to God, but what is going to happen when you get there? What's your plan to deal with your sinfulness when you stand before a holy God? My prayer for each of us in this room is that we'll each have an advocate standing there with us before the Holy One. My prayer and God's desire is that each one of us in this room, we will have another, capital A, another, that will take on our unrighteousness and impart instead to us His righteousness. And according to the testimony of the Word of God, that person is Jesus Christ. The way that leads to salvation, salvation, eternal life, is narrow. As it says in verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So that's one of the ways the passage is commonly applied. But in the context of the verses of this chapter and this sermon as a whole, I'm not sure that's exactly the reason why Jesus spoke those words. So they're absolutely true, but I don't think that's the context of what He is trying to say here. Rather, I think in these two verses, it seems to me that Jesus' point in making this statement, continues on with the theme of all of his words in the last few chapters. Again, this is a message for disciples. That's who came up the hill in chapter 5, verse 1. And so as a message to the disciples, rather than speaking to the way that leads to eternal life, the application is Jesus is speaking to the way that leads to abundant life. Jesus' point in the context of this sermon is this, is that following Him is not the easy path. Did anybody ever tell you that? I hope they did when you came to faith. Because I think a lot of us, we came to faith in sort of a bait and switch kind of thing. You want everything to be perfect and wonderful and do you want you know, butterflies to follow you around where you go? You know, yeah, I would like that. Or whatever. Following Jesus is not the easy path. Following Him will require faith It requires discipline, and it requires endurance. The easy path is for me to fit in with the way and the direction of the rest of the world, and I'll say this, and much of the church. That's the easy path. The easy path is for me to give in to my flesh and live a life of ease, comfort, and submission to the selfish desires of my flesh. That's the easy path, and you can do that. But just know this, know where that path will lead you. It doesn't lead you to the place of abundant life. There's only 
one way that leads to abundant life. And that, Jesus says, is a narrow and treacherous path. Jesus gave another teaching on this idea of the abundant life. It's in John chapter 15. I'll quote some of it to you. You can read the whole thing. It's a wonderful chapter. He says this, Abide in my love, and if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Abide in His love, and keep His commands. That's the path to abundant life. That's the path to complete joy. It's not found in compromise. It's not found in watering down the standard. It's not found in the path that everybody else is taking. Abundant life, which Jesus designs and desires for His disciples, is found in abiding in His love and keeping His commands. And when you and you walk with Christ, you find that's too hard to do. I don't have the energy today, Lord. I'm cranky today. I don't feel like doing it today. And you find that you just don't have the energy to do it. Then you go back to that verse we started with today. Ask, seek, and knock. That He would give you the gift of His Holy Spirit to enable you. Be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit. Would you agree with that? Amen. Father, we thank You for a challenging word today. But a good word, Lord. Lord, you love us abundantly. You desire great things for us. You want us to be in harmony and communion with you each day of our life and each step of our day, Lord. Lord, you've given us the gift of your Holy Spirit and you exhort us, Lord, to allow the Spirit to have, if you will, complete control of our lives. Not just to have him in our lives, so to speak but to give Him total control, to submit to His leading and His guidance. And so Father, as we seek to live out this golden rule, Lord, I pray You would save us from the failure that will inevitably come as we try to do these things in our own strength. Lord, we know that some of us have to learn by experience and mistakes we kind of put our finger on the hot stove to know that it's hot but we don't have to learn that way we can we can learn by you teaching us and just trust you at your word and not go near the hot stove because you told us it was hot and so father i pray that you would use your word this morning to do that in our hearts that you would teach us that we would walk away from here convinced of our need to stop trying to do it in our own strength and instead to trust You and depend on You and to look to You. Lord, to be people of prayer, coming to You in faith with persistence and dependence, trusting that You're good, trusting that Your timing is perfect, trusting that Your will is perfect for us. Lord, give us hearts like that widow that was determined to get justice. Lord, that we would be determined to see Your will accomplished in our lives. Fill our hearts with faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, 
please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.